Romans chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 23 to 26 today, but I want to read again from verse 21 to the end of the chapter for the sake of context. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness from God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We're in that section of Romans where we are considering the, the teaching of justification by faith. And you know, there's a temptation when you hear that kind of a phrase, justification by faith, to think that's theology. That's one of those high-sounding, churchy kinds of phrases. What's that got to do with me, really? And as I was studying the passage this week and beginning to meditate again afresh on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, I got so thrilled. I just I became overwhelmed with joy and, and with appreciation and with gratitude for what God has done for me in Jesus Christ and for who He is. And I want to share that with you this morning. I want you to enter with me into this passage of Scripture and get into the heart of what's being said here. Because it talks to us about a relationship that we can have with God on the basis of faith that takes all the pressure off of us without in any way diminishing the holiness or the righteousness of God. And faulty views of, of understanding what this means either leaves us still groveling in our sin, trying somehow to make God happy even as Christians, or it brings God down to a level that is less than holy. 
And Paul is painting a picture for us that makes sin as ugly as ever and God as holy as ever, while at the same time releasing us in order to have a relationship with Him where sin and the penalty of it does not factor into my walk with God. And, and friends, that is, a, that is just an incredible, incredible truth. Paul has started out by saying, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been revealed that comes by faith for all who believe. Now, it's in the context of all who believe that he makes the next statement in today's verse. For all have sinned. That's true of every human being. For all have sinned. But what Paul is about to say is, only true of those who believe. It is still true that all have sinned. I want to take you a little bit into the original language here, and, and you'll have to bear with me. I know sometimes you can, that can uh, maybe get belabored a bit. But it's actually there in the English language. If you know your grammar well, it kind of comes out in the page. When Paul says, all have sinned, what tense is that? What tense is that verb? It's past tense, isn't it? All have sinned. But when he says, and fall short, what tense is that? That's present tense, isn't it? Paul's talking to believers. He's trying to help us understand the, the immense scope of justification by faith. All have sinned. That's our history. And if you've been with us through those first couple of chapters, there's no contest. There is none righteous, not one. All have sinned. But, Paul says, we continue to fall short of God's glory. Not only do we have a sin history and a sin record, but you and I know, if we're honest with ourselves, we continue to fall short of God's glory. Even if you were in the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe this is possible, hang with me for a couple months and we'll get there. But even if you were to walk this entire day, this entire week, in the, in the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit so that you did not do one thing consciously contrary to the will and direction of God, you were perfectly obedient to Him. Do you know what would happen? A little further down the road, the Holy Spirit would open your eyes a little more fully to see a little more deeply into your heart, and He would begin to work on the next thing that needed to be changed in your life. And if you are honest, you would realize that thing was there all week when I was totally obedient. In fact, it's been there my whole life. And that is falling short. And our lives are filled with those things. It is not possible for us to be completely free from all of the tainting and darkness of sin on this planet. 
And so what do we do with that constant inward failure to be perfect like God? Because frankly, friends, that is the standard of the law. When Jesus came to the midpoint of his Sermon on the Mount, I believe it's the end of chapter 5, maybe the end of chapter 6, he made this statement, Therefore you are to be perfect. It's in Matthew, by the way. Therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. And how many of you can sit here this morning and say, I qualify. I don't see any hands. I didn't think so. Mine's just up to see if you want to raise yours. I don't qualify either. But what do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that every day of our lives, there is stuff that comes up in our lives that is ugly to God? Notice the tenses. All have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God. But look what he says in verse 24. Being justified. Tense, please. Present. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Did you get all those important words? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That means as I walk along in life and this ugly stuff keeps coming up in me, that God keeps pouring the blood of Christ over it, and I'm constantly being justified, so that when God looks at me, the only thing He sees is that robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. He never judicially sees the sin. I'm going to explain that in just a second, but that's important. God never judicially sees my sin. It's not that he's blind. It's not that he doesn't recognize that I do fail, that I do need to grow, that I have things yet to learn that I don't even know about. It doesn't deny that. It doesn't mean that God's not aware of it. But when it comes to the issue of sin and its penalty and its offensiveness to God the Father, when he looks at me, he sees me in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ And every day of my life, justification is applied freshly to me by the grace of God as a gift so that I always have right standing with Him. In 1 John chapter 1, if you want to turn there for a moment, I want to talk about that for just a second because it's actually a parallel passage. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, John says this, if I can get my Bible to turn there, those two pages like each other. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with him and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I want to just stop there for a moment and have you look at that. If we walk in the light, what does it mean to walk in the light? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his own dear son. That when we are born again and justified by faith, we are moved out of the darkness into the light. John says, if we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with him. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. That cleansing happens to be, again, a present tense kind of a verb that we are being continually cleansed. I I think I've told you this story before, but... Uh, if you've ever stood at the edge of a waterfall and just contemplated it, how many of you have ever done that? You've stood near the edge of a waterfall and you just kind of watched it. Whoa, some of you need to take some trips. <laughs> you, you need to go on a vacation where there's waterfalls. Well, they're, they're incredible, you know? And if, if you ever notice these things, the, the waterfall is kind of like, it's almost like as deep as the stream. You know, little brook, the water's about maybe two inches going over the rocks. Niagara Falls, the water's like maybe ten feet going over the rocks. But, but it, it just flows over the rocks and off it goes. And if you look right at the edge, if you can get close enough to a waterfall to look at the edge where the water's making that crest, nothing sticks there. There might be some moss on the other side. There might be a little fungus or something growing after the the pressure has passed and it's kind of in the leeward side but nothing grows right on top of the rock where the where the water is turning in fact the the stones get polished and if you can imagine your life in your relationship with God like those stones right at the brink of the fall And every time a little speck of sin dirt pops up in your life, there's a flood washing it away. There's a flood. And when God looks down, that flood of the mercy and grace of God and the blood of Jesus is continually flowing. And when God looks at you, all he sees is those clean, polished rocks. Nothing sticks, man. Nothing holds. If we walk in fellowship with God, the blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us continually from all sin. John goes on to say, (laughs) we say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. Okay, I'm glad you didn't raise your hand a minute ago because you'd be a deceiver here. You'd be self-deceived. If we say we, we don't, nah, there's no specks of dust in me. You're nuts. If you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if we have confessed our sin, if we have come to God and come clean with Him, God, you're right. 
I am a sinner. I confess it. I am a sinner. I have sinned. He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from, from all unrighteousness. Now, I, I, again, I'm hung up on these verbs this morning, okay? This is really not a grammar lesson, but I'm hung up on these verbs because they're so important. John tells us if we come to God and agree with Him concerning the nature of our life and our heart and confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse, and those two verbs are in the aorist tense, and in the Greek that means done. There's a continual cleansing for those who are walking in the light, but there is a complete cleansing and a complete forgiveness the day we acknowledge our sinfulness before God. Listen very closely. It's a discussion question for this week, so you can hammer it out in your small groups, okay? A child of God never needs to confess sin in order to receive judicial pardon. Are you with me? A child of God never needs to confess sin in order to get release from its penalty because Jesus already paid the price. It is important to keep short accounts with God and, and confess your sin to Him in order to maintain the intimacy of your relationship. If you're married and you're in a covenant relationship, you already know this. Because if you do something to hurt your spouse and you don't ever say anything about it, one of two things is, is going to happen. Your marriage is going to get in trouble eventually. You know, or um, it's going to just pile up and blow up. When you're in a relationship with a person and you have offended them and you don't, you don't bring it up and talk about it and, and ask their forgiveness and get back on the same page, you're in trouble. You need to do that. But it does not change your covenant of marriage, hopefully. But with God, who... <laughs> keeps his word eternally. It does not change our covenant relationship with him. We are forgiven people. We are justified people. We are cleansed people. And every day that we walk with God, we are continually cleansed. So that when he looks at us from the standpoint of judgment and penalty and judicial justice, we are clean and holy in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to talk to God about your failure. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But I encourage you to do that because it, it maintains the relationship, the intimacy with God. But don't get hung up on the terms I'm using. Some people say, I oh, fellowship, you lose fellowship, you keep relationship. Don't get hung up on that. Let's talk about covenant and, and just harmony. Okay? We have a covenant relationship with God, and we are permanently clean through Jesus Christ. And nothing will ever get in the way of that. Having so said, we need to walk in harmony with God, and that requires keeping an open life and short accounts, and, and, and talking with Him and agreeing with Him when we fail. 
But Paul wants us to understand, back in Romans, that third chapter, that Jesus Christ has done such a thorough work that when you come to him in faith and repent of your sin and agree with God that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and you take Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and receive the gift of forgiveness, that is a permanent gift. And your sins have been forgiven and you are justified every day as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul begins to go to the heart of the objection, because if, you, if you're with Paul to this point, if you're following him, you've got, to be, you've got to be wondering, how does God do this? I mean, does he just wink at sin? Does he just kind of say, oh, I believe in Jesus, okay, <laughs> well, I just forget you ever sinned, and we just, we just won't take that into account anymore. No. God hates sin. And the law says the soul that sins will die. There's no way out of that. God cannot violate his standards. He cannot back off from the truth of his judgment. He is a holy God. Sin is sin. His attitude toward it is hateful. He hates sin, and it must be dealt with. And so Paul tells us, whom God displayed, verse 25, publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. Now let's talk about the public part for a moment. Paul is telling us that something happened on the cross. that was important to happen in a public venue. And when we think of public, we think of out, you know, out in the town square where everybody can see. And that's true. Jesus was crucified on the hill outside of Jerusalem on a main road where everybody could see. And, and it was a time of Passover, so there were thousands of people in Jerusalem. But it wasn't just the people. Paul tells us in Colossians that when Jesus died on the cross, he made public display of the demons and the rulers and the evil, and the evil angels. He put them to open shame. What is the devil's biggest work? He is the accuser. He's the accuser. He tricked us into sinning. He continues to trick us into sinning, and then he sits on the sidelines and cackles with glee and points the finger and says, you sinned, you're a sinner, you ugly, filthy, dirty, wretched, sinful soul. Look at you. How could God want anything to do with you? You're a mess. That's his nature. But before, but before Satan, before the demons, and before the angels, Jesus died on the cross. It was a public death, and it was public for a reason. Because God wanted the entire universe to see His Son there bearing the sins of human beings. So that the accuser would not have a leg to stand on. He can still run his mouth. 
but he has no more credibility and he has no more basis for fact. Because when he accuses us, all we have to do is point to Jesus. And he was there. Satan was there. He saw it. He tried to prevent the resurrection. That's another story. But believe me, he was very much involved in the cross. He didn't want it to happen. And when it happened, he did not want the resurrection to happen. And yet Jesus could not be contained. And he rose in victory. And Satan was there. He saw it all. And the demons of hell saw it all. And the angels witnessed it. Jesus publicly died. And what did he die to do? It says he was a propitiation. In his blood. What in the world is that propitiation all about? Well, friends... God has an attitude when it comes to sin. And his attitude has never changed. In fact, his attitude towards sin is the same today as it ever was. He hates sin. He hates it so much that sinners will spend eternity in hell out of his presence, separated from him. God has an attitude towards sin that can only be described as wrath. You know, people get angry. People can go into a rage. And we, we have a hard time getting hold of the righteous wrath of God because we're so ungodly when we're in a rage. We're just so ungodly. There's so much sin involved in our self-righteous rages. But when God gets angry, he's angry. And you just think about the Old Testament in those situations, you know, the sons of Korah, mouthing off to God, challenging, you know, the earth opens up, they're gone. Fire swallows them up. Yikes. Not a good thing. God, God does not play around with sin. And, and his wrath is incredible. In fact, because he is God, his wrath is infinite. Can you imagine infinite wrath? Neither can I. But eternal hell is part of, of the consequence. God has strong feelings about sin. And propitiation means that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, and all the sin of the world clung to him, and God the Father from heaven saw his Son, the perfect man, the eternal Son of God, hanging on the cross in my place. And all of that sin, God could not bear to look at the sight. The Father turned His back. And in those moments, the Lord Jesus Christ was separated from His Father's fellowship. This is the Godhead 
This is the eternal God. And the Father has turned his back upon the Son. And in those moments, all of his wrath was expended on Jesus. And Jesus bore it. We sing a song, I will never know how much it cost to see your son upon the cross. And we won't. We will never be able to enter into the intimate depths of the Son and the Father as Jesus became the sin-bearer and all the wrath of Almighty God was poured out on him. And in those agonizing moments, when it had been enough, Jesus cried, it is finished. It's finished. That word is not a theological word. It's an economic word. It, it simply means the debt is paid. The debt is paid in full. When you take a receipt in and pay for something in cash, a bill that you have and you take it in to the store and you pay it in cash there at the counter and they stamp your bill, paid in full. It is a legal document that says you have no more debt. It's done. It's finished. The books are closed on this account. Jesus said it is finished. The debt is paid. And all the anger and the wrath of God has been pulled out, poured out upon him until there is no more. And it's as if we could hear this cosmic <sighs> and God is no longer angry. For those who look to Jesus, his wrath is spent. He has none left. Propitiation means that he took the wrath of God and assuaged it, expended it, canceled it, absorbed it, so that there's none left. And all of God's hatred for sin landed on Jesus. Paul was a Jew and he could not help but be referring to Passover when he said, in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. He's thinking of that Passover time. You remember the Jews living in Goshen in Egypt? And the, the nine plagues had already happened and were coming up on the tenth. And this is God's judgment on the ungodly and the unrighteous. He says, I am going to send the death angel. He's going to pass over the land of Egypt. And, and the firstborn child in every family is going to die. But to the Jews in the land of Goshen, he said, Go out into your herds, your flocks, Go out into those flocks and find a one-year-old lamb that is the, the most perfect specimen you can find. No blemishes, no broken legs, no scratched up. Find a lamb that is perfect. As far as you can judge, bring your best. 
kill that lamb, slit its throat, drain out the blood, and then prepare to roast it. But the blood you are to take and you are to put it on the doorpost and the lintels. For those of you that are not into construction, the lintel is the top piece that kind of is held up by the doorpost and holds up the rest of the wall. What he said was you put it on either side of the doorpost, on both sides of the frame and over the top. Put the blood there. And when the death angel comes over the land of Egypt and sees the blood on the door, he will pass over that house and not cause any death. I want to tell you something, friends. Any Jew that had failed to do that would have suffered the death of their firstborn. And any Egyptian that had believed Moses and did it would have been spared. Because the Jews weren't any more righteous than the Egyptians. If you read the opening of Exodus, they're not even really praying. They're just grumbling, crying, and complaining. And really, they don't ever stop that. They just keep it up. They weren't any more righteous than the Egyptians. But God said, if you will trust me, if you will believe me, and you will put the blood on the doorpost and over the top, I will pass over you and not cause death in your home. And they believed God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. And the death angel passed over them. That was a foreshadowing. You know, for 1,500 years after that, the Jews celebrated Passover and they were looking forward to the cross. That was what it was all about when Jesus would shed his blood. And when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, for those who believe and apply that blood to their hearts by faith, God says, I will pass over your sin. In passing over our sin, is he ignoring it? Is he pretending that it doesn't exist? Is it some kind of magic wand? What is he doing? Oh no. The scripture says, Paul goes on to say, that he might be just. Verse 26, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, we're not in Passover now, we're, we're now, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does the law say? The soul that sins will die. What does God say? If you're a sinner, you must die. Not die just physically, you must die in eternal death apart from me. Jesus is the perfect lamb. He is a sinless man. He was born of a virgin without a sin nature, and throughout his whole entire life, in all of the temptations that came at him, Jesus never once sinned. When he was nailed to that cross, he had no sin of his own. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And he said, I will bear the sins of, of the world. Now we ask ourselves the question, how can one man die for many? And to me the answer is that Jesus is not only perfect man, but he is perfect God. He is infinite in his person, even though he is human in his nature. He is also infinite in his person because he is God. God the Son. And in his infinitude, 
in his unlimited, boundless capacity. Jesus on the cross shed his righteous, holy blood that was sufficient to cover the sins of an entire race of human beings. One drop of his blood sprinkled in that heavenly altar is sufficient to cover the sin of a thousand worlds because infinite means without limitation. And so Jesus Christ could die on the cross and he could fulfill the requirement of the law. The soul that sins will die. Jesus on the cross died. He was separated from the Father. He took my sin upon him. He bore it in infinite dimensions. And now God says, without compromise, without blinking at the law, without in any way nullifying my righteousness, if you will accept the substitutionary payment that my Son has made on your behalf, I will accept your debt as paid in full. And I will give you, in its place, perfect standing with me. Not just for today, but forever. And like that waterfall, that rock glistening on the edge, I will wash you clean in the blood of Jesus every day that you live. So that you always have right standing with me, by faith. And all that is required is that I believe, truly believe that Jesus has paid the price and receive and accept the gift, the sacrifice that he has made for me as I receive him as my Lord and Savior. How does that affect your walk with God? Well, friends... It dramatically affects my walk with God. What happens when you fail? What do you feel? Who's there? The accuser of the brethren. Isn't he there? When you mess up, doesn't he tell you, look at you? Look what a mess you are. Do you struggle with something habitual in your life? And Satan says, you've done it again. Why would you even want to dare to go talk to God about this, you fool? That's Southern. <laughs> Why would you want to talk to God about this? You've done it again and again and again. God's sick of hearing you. God's sick of you coming back. You've fallen on your face. You're just face down in the mud. You, you've failed miserably. You're David in Psalm 51. And the devil says... Just lay there. You deserve it. Better yet, try to work yourself out of your own mess this time, because God's really ticked with you. Ever have a crisis come up in your life when, you're, when you've come off of a sin bender? Christians don't do that, right? Okay. Well, just hypothetically... You know, you've been out there, and here's the crisis, and you need to pray. What's the first thing you hear? You can't pray. You idiot. 
You can't talk to God. He's mad with you. Am I the only one or do you experience that? Anybody ever experience that? Are you going to raise your hands for this one? Okay, honest folks, a few of you here. The rest of you, you can repent when you get home. (laughs) You weren't willing to admit it. Sure, the accuser of the brethren is there. And the cistern too. He leaves nobody out. And he hammers you down. And he makes you feel like, you know, I've got, I've got to perform. I, I got myself into this. I've got to get myself out of this. And God's mad with you. He doesn't want to talk to you anyway. Friends, listen. The debt is paid. The debt is paid. God is not wrathful toward you. He's not sitting up there just the minute you lift your eye up out of the mud hole to smack you. In fact, God's whole attitude toward you has changed. Jesus is your propitiation. God has no wrath toward you. He says, why don't you sit down and talk to me? Why don't you let me help you? Why don't you allow me to show you how in my spirit you can walk in victory, you can be successful? Why don't you come to me? I want to help you. I'm your father. I'm here to bless you. Just I already know the story. Just Talk to me about it. Lay it out. Come to terms. Agree with me. And let's move on. I want you to walk with me in joy and in fellowship. Friends, that makes all the difference in the world to me. To know that my God is not ready to judge me. Because he has already judged me in Jesus. And when he looks at me, he's not blind to what I'm doing, but he is reckoning that absolutely clean rock, that absolutely cleansed life in Jesus Christ. I am perfectly righteous in him. Judicially. Do you understand that difference? There's no warrant out for me. If you've got a warrant out for you, you're always worried about the cop on your tail. Okay, but there's no warrant. You're not going to get arrested. There's nothing to run from. That debt is paid. So let's talk about the problem. God wants to invest in your life. He wants to fill you with His Spirit. He wants to show you how it's done. He wants to teach you how to walk in him and instead of being your adversary he's your coach he's your friend he's your encourager because jesus has already taken his wrath that ought to make a difference in how you live it ought to make a difference in how you pray my capacity to pray has nothing to do with me i'll tell you the truth and john admits it in first john chapter four i believe it is 
yeah, my conscience will yell at me if I've messed up and now I've got to ask God for help. But only the foolish run. Because I don't have any basis to pray when I've done everything right. Except Jesus. I can pray in the midst of my trouble as much as I can pray in the midst of my success. In fact, the smartest thing you can do when you're sinking is say, Help me, Lord, I'm drowning. Remember Peter? The smartest thing you can do is say, Help! I need your help. And God is ready to respond. Friends, think about what it means to have no sin credited to your account. Not yesterday, not today, not forever. Because Jesus has paid it all. And you are free in him. Now, walk with God. He's not against you. Walk with God and let him show you how to live in his spirit. It's what makes it possible. Father, I pray this morning that we would get it. That we would understand what it is to be continually cleansed. That we would bask in that glory and in that freedom. And in so doing, Lord, for those of us that have seen grace, we know it's not a ticket for unbridled, passionate sinning. It's such a joy and a release and a relief that our heart's desire is to please you. You who died for me. You who gave me life. You who walks with me and fills me with your spirit. The longing of my heart, oh my God, is to please you in every respect. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.